Hello and welcome to Talking Eds, APN Educational Media's weekly review podcast, comprising the team behind Early Learning Review, Education Review, and Campus Review. I'm Patrick Avenal, and I'm the news editor for these sites. The Education Review team is preparing the Protect Ed Conference, a look at how technology is changing the education sector and what precautions schools should consider in the digital age. This conference is on Friday, 21 October 2016. Go to educationreview.com.au and look for Protect Ed. And now, what role should robots play in the classroom? Investment in fossil fuels fueling dissent among universities. Mike Baird chats about collaboration and innovation and an update on what's happening with the new vet fee help replacement. I'm joined by Lauren Smith from Early Learning Review. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Patrick. How have you been this week? Pretty good, and yourself? I've been really well. It's great to be joining you here. And I've also got James Wells, the editor of Education Review and Campus Review. How are you going, mate? Good, how are you? I'm very well. What have you been up to this week? Uh, not much, just writing stories. Oh, geez, we've got to do more with our week so we that we've got stuff to say. We're not all movie buffs like you, Patrick. <laughs> I actually haven't seen any films this week, but I'll... Checking out a couple of Stanley Kubrick films this weekend, hopefully. Uh, part one today, Lauren. Robots should help not replace early learning, early childhood educators. That was an intriguing headline of an opinion piece you published this week on Early Learning Review. What's the story about? So this story was written by Leon Sterling. He's a professor emeritus at Swinburne University. And also Mike Timms, the Director of Assessment and Psychometric Research at the Australian Council of Educational Research, often called ASOP. So basically what they're saying is there's a lot of fear around robots replacing human jobs, also in the education field. Uh, And then there are the detractors who have a very sort of humanist focus and say that robots have no place in the classroom and what... Uh, Leon and Mike are proposing is that robots do have a place, but it's to assist, not replace teachers. And they make some arguments for this, starting with one that they call differentiated instruction. So that's when you get a robot who can be programmed to assist uh, students with individual needs, for example, those with autism. So instead of the teacher having to cater for that student specifically and uh, taking their time away from the other students, they can program a robot to specifically help that child. And there's a robot called the Now Robot, spelt N-A-O, that is already doing this. So another benefit that they mention is um, a motivation robot, which I think we could all use. (laughs) And the Now Robot is also being used in that regard. And a third benefit is a robot used as eyes in the classroom to help a teacher monitor students. There are also some issues with robots, which means that they're not going to replace teachers in the the near future. So the obvious one is that robots are not sufficiently human enough to perform the role of a teacher. Their communication skills are not up to par with humans. Uh, So... Another one is their obviously emotional uh, limits in that they can't detect human emotion and they also can't recognise symbolic representations and this is uh, in early learning of particular um, challenge because obviously students draw pictures and teachers interpret those but robots can't do that. In my mind's eye, I have like a vision of like a Robocop or a Terminator standing at the front talking on like a, an anthropomorphic, uh, you know, human style android, you know, 
doing the times tables and leading the class in a spelling uh, bee. Are these robots sort of humanistic or are they more functional and, and more sort of, you know, mechanical? Well, the one I've looked at, which is the Now robot, kind of looks like a life-size toy robot. Looks a bit like the Stig. That's, from... that's not actually him oh. in the picture, but um, he, he kind of has a, a human-ish face, but very cute looking and obviously much smaller than a human. Um, but, you know, Japanese design, so very attractive. Um, but, yeah, very sort of friendly and approachable looking. And I, I guess one of the big uh, hurdles to overcome would be sort of like one of these robots comforting a child that, you know, has bruised their knee and burst into tears. Because we are talking about early learning here. Uh, you know, what, what sort of uh, uh, leaps and bounds being made in sort of adding that emotional intelligence to the IQ that you can program, I suspect, more easily? Well, that's the huge leap that we have to overcome and that from what I've read and researched, we are very far from overcoming. So we can't even get to the point where robots can understand us in terms of our speech, let alone our feelings. Should we give robots emotions? Well, that's a whole other debate. Um, one probably left to the philosophers. Um, well, I would probably prefer it if uh, when the rise of the machines does happen, if they do have some empathy for us <laughs> rather than just enslaving us or killing us. Yeah, there, there seem to be a lot of sort of doomsday prophecies out there with regards to artificial intelligence. Um, but yeah, I don't know. In part two today, James, we've seen a few stories about universities divesting from fossil fuels and other vices and, uh, and uh, the companies that trade in them, the companies that make fossil fuels, the companies that sell them. But not all universities are sharing this concern. In fact, we had some dissent this week. Tell us the story. Okay, so um, breaking from a chain of universities who have divested from their fossil fuel shares, you, the University of Queensland has decided to keep the $6.4 million it has in fossil fuel shares and, and not sell it. They, they want to keep it as quote-unquote, from their Chancellor, Peter Varghese, it would make no real difference. And he, at the same time, he also uh, criticised the Queensland University of Technology, um, one of their rivals, who did announce that they would divest um, last month for lack of transparency. As he says, it's likely they still have fossil fuel shares. So, and it's basically, it, it, it comes down to, would divestment make a real difference? And symbolically... I would say yes, because universities are, are supposed to be leaders in science, but monetarily, it's not that much, but yeah. So what's your thoughts, Patrick? Well, first of all, I just want to ask, is $6.4 million portfolio, is that a lot in the scheme of things? Um, not in the fossil fuel industries, no, but it could it could be the snowfall that causes an avalanche, possibly. And the universities, in case people aren't aware of this, and, and I wasn't aware of this, Universities have enormous share portfolios. Yeah, that they, they all have investments. They do. QUT um, has a massive share portfolio through um, Queensland Investment Corporation. And for years, they said they had no direct um, investments in fossil fuels because they went through there, whereas their money was going through um, into fossil fuels through QIC. But now they don't, obviously. Um, UTS, also, UTS um, which was different, did have direct investments into fossil fuel companies, but and now they've announced that they'll sell those shares as well. And some universities, like the Australian National Uni University, are partially divested, which meaning they've only divested from coal. Well, you asked me what my view was. Look, whether they invest or divest, it's not going to make any difference regarding whether these companies succeed or fail. Uh, but 
it's about whether universities want to be ahead of the curve or behind the curve. I think that looking forward, the sort of products that fossil fuel companies trade in, you know, like unclean products like coal, they are going to be made redundant. You know, it might take 100 years, but it's going to happen. Mm. And I think, do you want to be the first company that sells out or do you want to be the last company that sells out? Mm. Uh, but I tend to I tend to empathise with the with the UQ Chancellor. All the, all the all the universities that are divesting from this, they're doing so only so they can send a media release. I don't think they're doing it out of some altruistic goal, mm. and I don't even think they're doing it out of some sort of financial consideration. I think that you know these are drop in the ocean holdings. It's uh, you know only four percent of UQ's entire portfolio were in are in these companies. Um, mm. I assume the rest are all in blue chip banks and yeah. in um, property companies. And UQ has a, a fund for donors um, and who can make and donate specifically to that fund if they don't want their money going to fossil fuels. That's important to note as well. Lauren? I don't think it matters why they're doing it. I think it matters whether they do it or not. And I think it shows that they're either taking a stance against climate change or not. And I think especially to attract young people to to their institution that they should be taking that stance and also just as a symbolic representation of what they stand for they should be taking that stance and I'm actually shocked that you know universities are only just beginning to do this and that some such as the University of Queensland aren't doing it that really surprises me. I note that Fossil Free UQ uh, an organisation lobbying UQ to divest itself uh, Sarah Blessing uh, says Fossil fuel divestment and climate change research are not mutually exclusive. Research outcomes shouldn't be dependent on the university's investment in the fossil fuel sector. Mm. Well, that's their argument. They, they're saying that the university is being held to ransom because there's vested interests in, the research, in their research outcomes, which is up for debate. In part three, I want to have a chat about uh, New South Wales Premier Mike Baird. I attended a presentation that he gave uh, today, Friday, uh, about innovation and collaboration and he spoke at length about New South Wales and specifically Sydney's role in uh, you know the the growth of the sort of the innovation sector and the startup culture and it was very bullish talking about how New South Wales is the fastest growing state Sydney's the fastest growing city in these uh, in these divisions he threw a lot of shade on uh, Brisbane and Melbourne saying that uh, Sydney and New South Wales have completely um, outgunned them while he's been the premier and he spoke at length about how companies like Uber have set up, you know, new offices with 100 plus employees in Sydney. And, and it was really, it was, you know, it was very uh, adamant and strident, his view that Sydney is the sort of the research, the tech hub, the collaboration and innovation centre. Uh, and we have seen, you know, in, in evidence of that are the way UNSW and what uh, Sydney Lord Mayor Clovermore calls the research triangle between UTS, UNSW and Sydney Uni, there is a lot of that activity happening. And at the end of this podcast, I'm actually going to uh, upload, uh, you can listen to the whole of the speech. We're going to tack the speech at the end of it. So he talks at length about uh, why he thinks Sydney and New South Wales are the best uh, city and state for innovation and collaboration. So you can listen to that. Just Lauren and James, do you think that Sydney and New South Wales, where we are, where we're from, uh, doing this podcast, is it, is it the best? I know that we have the best economic output of any state or territory in Australia. As for innovation, I think Melbourne might beg to differ. Yeah. I was just there over the weekend <laughs> and I was being told about the state's outstanding credentials in the startup game. So I don't know who to believe. 
I agree. I think Melbourne's the place to be for actually innovation and startups. I don't think Sid- Sydney's got a lot of old vested interests here, but which I don't, which I don't think have in, much of an interest in startups. Which are, but Melbourne's the place to be. For our listeners outside New South Wales, the Premier Mike Baird, he this week he backed down from the decision to ban greyhound racing. And at the end of his presentation, uh, you know, a lot of the people on the media table and a lot of the, the business people that have paid $200 a plate to be there were all ready to shoot their arms in the air to ask questions. And he walked off the stage and refused to do a Q&A, which is very unusual for these sort of events. And there were audible groans throughout the, uh, throughout the, the auditorium at that. So I think there were going to be a lot of questions about his Cheju's mind about the Greyhound racing and also uh, what, what's happening regarding the lockout. Uh, laws, in addition to the, this sort of uh, impetus that he's putting into innovation and collaboration. Now, the other story that I wanted to touch on, it's uh, uh, an update on last week's story, which is the federal government's decision to overhaul VET, which is uh, the vocational education and training. Uh, the system that uh, funds it has changed dramatically or is going to change if Parliament adopts the recommendations. And I personally hope they do. Uh, so what what's happened is that uh, the Education Minister, Simon Birmingham, and his department, they've just gone through the list of all these courses with a red pen, essentially, and they've just scratched out a huge number of them. Some of the ones that are, are gone are circus arts, life coaching, butler service management, Christian ministry, hairdressing creative leadership, Ayurvedic lifestyle consultation, securitization, dance movement therapy, advanced diploma of police witness protection. I mean... It does get very ultra and niche uh, on this list of courses that have been scratched off. And you can see where there would have been a lot of rorting and where there are no real job prospects uh, with these courses. On the, on the other hand, a couple of these that have, are retaining their, their funding include a diploma of pork production, a diploma of well servicing operations, a diploma of stained glass and lead lighting. That's very good for the church building industry and a diploma of mind-body medicine. Uh, According to uh, the government's justification for some of these is that if it is a legitimate STEM course, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, it immediately got the go-ahead. So it really didn't matter how unusual it was. If it was STEM, it was here to stay. And the other uh, way to get clearance was that two states or territories out of the eight uh, had it on a skills shortage list. So it looks as though there are at least two states in Australia that have a problem with uh, pork production skills. Although I would suggest that there's a lot of pork going on in, in this, in this uh, system. So I, I just wanted to ask Lauren and, and James your thoughts on this. And also if you, in your education career, ever got the opportunity to do an unusual course like, you know, softball studies or something like that. Lauren? Well, I'd just like to remark on the fact that I heard that art history is being removed Mm. from Australian university faculties. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that really shocked me and upset Mm. me. Yeah, and as a a person with a degree in it, I'm I'm very grateful that I've already got a job as well. Mm. I've heard um, a lot of criticism that the STEM subjects automatically get a pass, whereas do they really automatically lead to a job? All we have is a vague figure saying that 75% of jobs in the future will be STEM-related, and that comes from a very dodgy... Um, uh, it com- well, not, not a dodgy report. It comes from a US Department of Education report which says a majority of jobs in the future will have 
um, will require st- uh, STEM skills in the future, which was published in 2005, and it doesn't even put a number on it. What I find interesting about this is the, the, the government, the Turnbull government, have sort of they hitched their whole economic jobs creation, education for the future plan to STEM. It's STEM, STEM, STEM. It's all about, you know, focusing on people learning those core skills and also, which I think is admirable, getting more women involved in it where there is a huge shortage. But then we saw at the last election, the junior minister for STEM, uh, Wyatt Roy, lost his seat. I mm. mean, it clearly doesn't resonate that much with with voters. It, it, it isn't... I don't think it's as important to voters as, as the government makes out. And I think giving it the free pass... It, I, I didn't necessarily agree with that. I think that they should have looked carefully at whether there is actually a need for those courses mm. because I think that they will, you know, in, in 24 months' time, we'll look back and we'll say, yeah, there was definitely rorting going on in well servicing operations. Mm. Well, the other thing is that I hear that scientists today can't get jobs. So if we're producing even more scientists, unless the jobs suddenly proliferate, mm. I don't see how these people are suddenly going to be employed. Well, that, that's a very interesting point. The uh, it'd be good to go back, good to go and have a look at the stats about how many people mm. are graduating with a bachelor of science and wh- what the pathway is, or whether you it's, that's no longer good enough. You've got to get it, honors, masters, PhD. Um, the Grand Institute has done a lot on this, and the general wrap up is: as long as if you do a generalist science degree, you, your job prospects are pretty bad. But if you go into specialisations, they improve. Engineering, I believe, is one of the best. But yeah, that's a, that's. Um, I can't rattle numbers off the top of my head on this, though that's my understanding of it. But I know even uh, mining engineering, for example, is suffering at the moment because of the slowdown in the mining boom. So even if one area is generally safe, not all of that area is safe. So I think they need, the government needs to be more specific about what actual jobs will be needed as opposed to just saying this huge area of study is, should be encouraged. When I was at university, one of the courses that I got to do was a, uh, a science fiction course as part of my sociology major. And uh, in it, we read several socio- uh, science fiction texts, and then we talked about whether or not society is heading towards these sort of anti-utopian visions of the future. Books like uh, Brave New World, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which was the foundation work for Blade Runner. I just wanted to find out whether you guys had the opportunity to do something a little bit different and you know, what the value of these sort of non-traditional, non-straighty 180 courses are. I had a weird subject in on my first year of my journal degree. It was called Com 130. All the communication students had to do it. And one of the assess- assessments was is we had to get up and make a dance, which uh, uh, a storytelling dance, which told a story about a particular issue. And so we felt, yeah, it was interesting. And did you enjoy dancing? How serious did it have to be? Was this like a Middle East peace process and you enjoyed uh, dancing? I think, I think ours was like, um, it, was, it was to a Justin Bieber song and there was something to do with um, child abuse or something like that. It was really... You're showing your age now. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds more like student abuse if you were being forced <laughs> into Justin Bieber. Lauren? I have a bit of a student abuse story myself, actually. In doing Psychology 101 in first year, we were used as human guinea pigs in experiments of PhD students and one of the experiments I happened to be involved in uh, included electric shocks administered when random pictures were shown to you and there was there was a waiver signed but you know me being 18 and naive I just signed it and next thing I'm being um, exposed to these random electric shocks. How intense are these shocks? They were quite 
painful actually and halfway through I decided my human rights were being infringed and I stood up and I walked away and I said sorry I don't care about extra credit. Well if anyone from uh, Simon Birmingham's office is listening to this podcast uh, perhaps they can get in touch and we can find out how we can scratch that course yeah, off the list. Yeah it's UNSW Department of Psychology. <laughs> <laughs> Overnight uh, uh, Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for Literature and uh, he, he's obviously been a, a you know, prolific, successful musician, but also he has written a book and he has uh, been involved in other areas, but primarily he's been a songwriter for the last 50 to 60 years. And I, I just wanted to close by just asking if you feel as though there are other people from outside the norm, which are uh, poets, playwrights, novelists, that could deserve sort of essentially this highest honour in putting pen to paper. And uh, Lauren James, do you have any ideas outside of Bob? Uh, the rapper, Tupac? Yeah, I've heard a lot of rappers get mentioned. You have to be alive to win the Nobel Prize. Yeah, Pass I know, that's trend. an issue. So, but, well, but maybe he's alive. Yeah, people yeah. think he's alive. The, uh, the, Tupac's an interesting one. I, some other rappers have been, have been named over the years as being, as being sort of, you know, street poets that deserve this sort of, uh, uh, sort of acclaim. Lauren? Um, this isn't my personal recommendation, but one that I hear quite a bit is Metallica. James Hetfield. Yeah, I, I hear that he's actually a bit of a lyrical genius and that his songs are very meaningful. I don't personally enjoy them very much, but apparently there is some value to them. Well, I would certainly be going with Preload rather than the St. Anger years that, that, that followed. But that's, that's a really interesting call. The uh, Personally, I... I my favourite band is a band called uh, Modest Mouse, and they've got a very prolix songwriter and lyricist. Isaac Brock is the lead singer. And so I, I would be very happy for him to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. Of course, some people would have to go out and buy their records and get that exposure. Uh, it's been great joining uh, you two for Talking Ads. A reminder, coming up straight after we say our goodbyes, we're going to tap into Mike Baird, chatting about innovation and collaboration. It, it's, look, it, it's an interesting chat. Unfortunately, there was no Q&A at, Q at the end, but... Have a listen, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. James, thank you very much. No, yes, thank you very much for listening. Lauren? Thanks, bye. And stay tuned now for Mike Baird. As, as I start uh, today, I mean, I think um, I'll acknowledge it's uh, been uh, an interesting week. Um, in fact, look, I know, I know things are, are going um, reasonably tough. Um, in fact, I had a, the clearest signal ever uh, when, in the middle of this week, on my 17-year-old daughter, anyone has a 17-year-old daughter will understand this deeply, um, she actually texted me and said, you know, hi, Dad, how are you? Hang in there. Um, <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? <laughs> and, and I said to my wife, I said, are things really that bad? <laughs> I mean, bless her, I, I love her dearly, but um, communicating with parents is not a big part of life for a 17-year-old. So, anyway, we march on. And uh, I have to say, as uh, I come to you today, I, I am incredibly excited about this incredible state. And I don't know whether you see it or sense it, I am so optimistic about the future and where we are right now. And I do want to give you a quick sense of that. that the trip and the trade mission that I led uh, to Israel, I'll, I'll touch on that to, at the end, um, but that was an incredibly exhilarating experience across so many levels. And that starts to point to the future. You know, where, where are we going in this state beyond some of the challenges we have now and how do we get there? And I'll, I'll come to that 
um, towards the end of the speech. But I did want to remind us uh, in a snapshot, we have um, come closing in on about six years in government, and the, and the question is, you know, with the challenges we faced when we came in, how have we gone and, and how are we looking? And some of the key areas, I, I want to give you a sense, because when you look at it, um, you start to see that there's been some real progress um, and real opportunities starting to evolve here in the state. And, you know, like any um, good uh, sort of government, you really start at the context uh, of the economy. You know, how is New South Wales doing now to, to, to where it was? And uh, New South Wales currently is in a really strong position. We, indeed, we've got the fastest growing economy in the country. Uh, when we came in, New South Wales was actually the, the, the uh, slowest growing economy in the country. And it's growing at about 50% faster than the average uh, of all uh, the other states, and twice as fast as Queensland and South Australia. Indeed, if you looked at it uh, on a global context, the New South Wales economy is the 22nd biggest economy in the world. And indeed, since 2011, not only have we gone from last to first because of jobs and growth uh, here in Australia, but we've actually gone past the bigger economies around the world, or relatively bigger. We've, gone, we've overtaken Sweden, Poland, Belgium and Norway. So we're not only moving forward here, but in a global context, uh, New South Wales has certainly started to make its mark. And clearly, on the back of that term, we also have kept the AAA credit rating, which uh, is an incredibly important thing. Uh, which is a higher credit rating than the US, France, uh, UK, South Korea uh, and New Zealand. So we have made significant progress there. Uh, the job story is actually you know, quite incredible uh, on a relative basis. Since April 2011, we've uh, got 330,900 new jobs uh, here in this state. The unemployment rate is down to 5.2% versus the national average of 57 and for those that follow it closely, we were on average, for the previous 10 years before we came to government, about 0.4% above the national average. That's almost a complete 1% turnaround in terms of the unemployment rate. Uh, also, there are various regions that have grown significantly. And what's quite interesting is that in Western Sydney alone, since 2011, we've created more jobs there than we have in Queensland, South Australia and Tasmania combined. Um, so, so the growth we're seeing is, is happening everywhere. Regional jobs, more regional jobs in regional New South Wales, uh, actually, um, than places like Victoria. So we, we are growing across the state, across the city, and across many industries. And that's, that's a great thing. And if you look at the business confidence indexes, uh, consumer confidence, uh, both of those are stronger. Yes, they're not necessarily as strong as they possibly can be, but they're certainly both stronger. So, in that context, uh, with jobs coming and the economy growing, we've got a good platform uh, for everyone here in their businesses uh, to seek the next opportunities, more opportunities, more investment, take the risks of more employment, uh, and obviously we encourage that. Now, from a budget point of view, and you know, some people aren't as excited by budgets um, as I am. Uh, I love a good budget, uh, and I love a good treasurer, um, and certainly we've got one of those here in this state. But, you, you look at the, the, the context. So we, we, we were in a challenging position. We inherited structural deficits, um, and you know you, you, you take them out. We had about uh, five billion dollars worth of deficits over the, the four years, uh, and we made some decisions that needed to be made. Uh, rating and expenditure was growing at seven point two percent on average over the five years. We, we brought that down to less than four percent. Uh, that has sort of helped the bottom line, uh, even though revenues fallen. Uh, we're obviously keeping expenditure growth below revenue growth. Uh, and those decisions over time, as you know, in any sort of company context, you make those decisions, the benefits become exponential as you go along. 
uh, you know, we're in a position over the next four years where there are surpluses of $8 billion uh, combined over the next four years. So a strong operating position. But what hasn't been told as much, uh, which obviously the business community here will, will appreciate, is the net worth. I don't think I've ever heard any state politician talk about net worth, but it's an interesting thing to do. I mean, we, we're, we are custodians of our balance sheet. Are we making the right decisions in terms of investment into assets, uh, impacts on, on liabilities, minimising reducing those? And the net worth um, of this state when we came in, um, so 11 12, the first full 12 months, was $145 billion. Uh, and the current forecasts uh, for the net worth um, at the end of the estimate period is going to be $246 billion. So the overall net worth of the state um, is growing, or will grow, by $100 billion. Now that's, in a, in a shareholder context, the share price will be going up. Um, as, as you kind of get from the community, that's not really widely appreciated. Um, and uh, that's not something that they would necessarily see, but it is the mark, I think, of, of good government. You know, you need to make sure that you're not only dealing with today's political challenges, you're managing for the long term, both in operating balances and obviously the balance sheet. So $100 billion improvement in the net worth is a huge thing. Uh, net debt, I mean, at 14, 15, so the uh, previous uh, 12 months, the forecast, which was the last forecast we had, net debt was supposed to be 19.5 billion, so basically $20 billion. Uh, we've actually reduced that into a cash position. Um, so there is no net debt, but we are obviously borrowing more um, as we build more infrastructure. But effectively, if you think about what we've done with our asset recycling, we are taking $20 billion uh, of debt uh, and repaying it, uh, and then we're going to borrow back up at the same level. So same level of debt, but $20 billion uh, of new infrastructure, which is going to be leveraged to a huge array of economic activity across uh, the state. So I think in a budget context, uh, we have march forward significantly, indeed, um, the envy uh, of the other states. Uh, while we've made those budget decisions, we've also made decisions on how we improve services, and you know, this can be lost. Um, you hear the context of uh, Gonski funding and education. Uh, well, that's important because on a needs base, uh, and we believe every student across the state doesn't have a postcode or what school they're in, they should get the same level of support. Uh, and ultimately, the same level of funding, and ultimately that is what the Gonski uh, reforms are about. Uh, but it does require, well, notwithstanding the budget position and making the right sort of savings, we need more in the front line. So over 3,800 teachers, over 5,300 nurses and midwives, and so the areas of our schools and hospitals uh, where on a daily basis uh, they're dealing with the challenges of giving our kids the opportunities and sort of keeping us safe and well in the hospitals, uh, we are trying to put as much as we can uh, into those front lines. Also, things uh, of great importance, such as the NDIS, and the, the saving measures that we took back in those 2011 days, uh, will override a capacity for over 60,000 additional people uh, to get disability support. So disability payments, otherwise they wouldn't have got. So a big part, I think, of responsibility for government is, yes, grow the economy, yes, improve services and build the infrastructure, but make sure that you look after the vulnerable, because that take everyone with you. Uh, as you undertake uh, that sort of uh, economic reform. The largest probably focus comes in the infrastructure space and, and again, I mean that, that is a bit connected to the net worth, that is uh, connected into a huge part of our activities, but it's so important. And you say the word infrastructure and you think, well, that's interesting. Uh, but if you say, well, where your child is going to school, uh, you're going to have 
uh, new classrooms, expanded classrooms, uh, rather than the mountables, or you're going to have a new a place for your child in a, in a brand new high school that otherwise is not there, well that starts to make a real difference uh, to your life. And ultimately that's our challenge, I think, and to myself and to everyone in our cabinet. The decision we're making is to build the infrastructure, that's not just trophy projects, our projects about the functionality and the productivity of this great city uh, and making a difference uh, to everyone's daily life. And it's unprecedented. Uh, we, we took a decision at the last election that if we undertook a lease of the poles and wires, uh, well, that would give us $20 million uh, that we would have to invest in infrastructure to provide a difference to the next generation. That's really what it is. Uh, the Metro program, indeed, this year in, in transport spend alone, our infrastructure in the capital budgets is more than New York or London, uh, to give you a context of the size. It is unprecedented. It, it is the biggest undertaking in the history of this country. And what a difference it's going to make. Uh, the metro, which is underway, it's $20 billion in total. Uh, that metro, once you include the extension out to Bankstown. But it goes through the city. Uh, why is that important? Well, it unclogs um, that big uh, lock-up on the Harbour Bridge in terms of the rail network. Um, that extra capacity, that new route to the city, means there's up to 60% more capacity across existing rail networks. Um, and obviously those that aren't happy with the road projects that ask for more public transport, there has never been more public transport built and capacity built uh, in the history of the state, and that's going to make a huge difference. Um, those out in the northwest that were promised many times that that metro is going to come, uh, well, the great news is if you go out there, you can see it being built, and what a difference uh, it will make. Obviously the roads need to be widened and the capacity increase there as well. And doing them together has been a critical part of this. So the M4 and the M5s uh, at gridlock, um, we're, we're expanding them and connecting them, uh, which is a big part of the need to deal with that, the city of the future. Uh, and having that alongside our metro, I think, is a critical thing. But, you know, we also think, as, as I've outlined, there's much more money going into our hospitals and schools but also cultural and sports facilities. You know, a great city uh, needs its cultural facilities, needs its sports facilities, and we've underestimated those for a long, long time. We're close to, to revealing and outlining our cultural strategy, and it's incredibly exciting. You know, what a, what a great city, and I see uh, Graham Bradley here from Infrastructure New South Wales that's uh, been working on that. But, you know, we have some of the great cultural assets. I mean, that, uh, the Opera House, we all know how fantastic it is, but it actually requires money to maintain and upgrade and to continue to modernise. Um, similar with our art gallery, sim similar uh, with the MCA, similar with uh, Walsh Bay. Uh, we've got a huge capacity to continue to improve our competitive advantage as, as a global city, and that's what it is. And we're not just in competition uh, with the other cities. I mean, Melbourne, oh, that's not really competition. Um, <laughs> Brisbane, that's certainly not competition. Um, in fact, there is no competition here, here in Australia, let's face it. But uh, across uh, the world, you know, Sydney is viewed as just one of the most outstanding cities. Uh, and I had a, an unbelievably interesting discussion with some uh, ex, uh, expats recently, CEOs uh, from multinational companies. Global companies are now looking at Sydney as much more attractive than Singapore. And that's the, that is a real change. It always used to be the tax differential that drives the... Uh, there are a number of changes that have mean that Sydney is now competing with expats around the world, and that, that's the market we want to be. Multinational companies getting regional headquarters here, more opportunities, more jobs. And to do that, you have to have the infrastructure in terms of livability, uh, but at the same time, uh, you need the cultural and sporting facilities, and obviously we're doing both. 
Uh, housing has also grown, many in the housing sector here. Um, just before we came into government, approvals were running at about 24,000. Uh, in the last 12 months, they've gone up to 70,000. So having supply, um, that's connected to the infrastructure we're building, but it's also incredibly important uh, for the overall economy. We focused on um, customer service, uh, which you, you might have seen. I think that has been a, a hallmark change, trying to get our governments uh, to think about the people uh, it is responsible for or connecting with um, is a cultural shift. I mean, there are obviously many customer service orientated organisations here, uh, but the Service New South Wales approach that has come in has really tried to turn that around. I mean, it's been the best practice of how to deal with customers and I think has made a huge difference. Uh, we used to have a 1,000 websites and 8,000 numbers. I mean, it was really easy to deal with government. You just go through all those websites and numbers and you'll get to someone eventually. Um, we now have one website and a 24 hour, one, one line, 24 hours a, a day. Big difference. Opal Card has made it getting around uh, much easier. Uh, and those, those sort of approaches can't be underestimated. Um, how do you ensure, you know, we used to, if you used to go to the station, you had to, on Monday mornings, you used to sort of have to wait, get, get down there early as you waited in line uh, to, to get your tickets. Uh, Opal Card has changed people's lives and that's uh, significantly positive. So whilst we had a lot of challenges, um, I believe we made big progress across some of the, the key areas. Um, our health services, transport, education, infrastructure, economy, the budget. So we're in a great spot. So one of the, the challenges, I think, for any government is, well, what's next? You know, what's, what's the future? Where do we go? And I think um, the trade mission I undertook uh, to Israel this year was, was a perfect tonic uh, for sprinkling us on the... On, uh, uh, that mission, but uh, certainly the representatives from government in the context, uh, we have to do so much more uh, in the innovation space. And I just came from uh, an opening, an office opening, which I described as walking into the future, and that was uh, Uber, who are opening their head office here, um, about 100 people in, in the head office at the moment, uh, it's only been going for, for two years. Uh, in the context of what uh, they are doing, it's incredibly exciting. There's now 14,000 uh, people across New South Wales earning an income, uh, providing uh, part of that Uber service, uh, on average 20 hours a week. And that's, it's really only just got started. It's a, it's a huge uh, boost. And as I said to them, I mean, I think you are leading the way on where the future is. And the future, if you think about digital economy over the next 10 years, it's expected to grow at seven times the traditional economy. And you've heard the words innovation, what does that mean? Well, I was looking at it. 100 people uh, in an office. In fact, it was in my, the old HSBC offices uh, where actually I used to be. Um, and for, for the bankers amongst you, um, what used to be the head of credits office uh, is now a yoga room. Um, <laughs> how the world has changed. I wouldn't mind getting an head of credit back there. Um, but that's, but you know, there was, there was a vibrancy, there was an energy, uh, there was an excitement. And to me, that's what we're looking at, I mean, that's, they are growing the economy. Uh, not only themselves, uh, they're providing options for the community, uh, and their new business, Uber Eats, is, is sort of providing huge new revenue opportunities uh, for our restaurants and cafes. Uh, that's sort of going through the roof as we speak. Indeed, one of the uh, restaurants they said, which is very popular, Publos, um, it is already earning more of Uber Eats in two months than it was uh, on their existing business. So. You are seeing this disruption, you're seeing opportunity, you're seeing jobs, and we want New South Wales to be right at the centre. And one of the things about the trade mission that was very clear to me going to Israel 
you know, wow. I mean, not only an incredible country, I mean, so resilient to what they've been through to be back leading the world in so many ways, and the history and the beauty of it. But what is clear is in their DNA is this context of collaboration, uh, this context of innovation. And, and it seems to me that almost every student I ran into was, okay, what is my startup going to be? You know, how am I going to contribute and make a difference to the world? Whether it be the social enterprises I met, where you know this young man was uh, incredibly excited to provide an opportunity uh, for those who are uh, quadriplegics to use smartphones um, through looking at technology on an eye and sort of locking it onto a screen, uh, through to another that was providing hiking experiences uh, for those similarly um, who were challenged or in many respects either quadriplegic or paraplegic to get them hiking um, you know, up mountains. I mean, it, it was invigorating and I want to try and bring you know, that culture, that approach, that DNA here. And well, there was a number of things. I mean, by chance, New South Wales is the start-up city uh, in this nation. And I call it chance, I and mean, it's more luck rather than good management, but many people here in Sydney decided that they wanted a start-up and one start-up can encourage and collaborate with another and then on you go. And we already have heard some of the, the great ventures underway here, the fintechs and, and others in Stone and Chalk. But it is growing and we want to cement that and part of that trip was working very closely in collaboration. One of the things uh, that we saw uh, was, uh, I mean in terms of, in terms of the, 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 um, the agreements we signed, uh, we saw in cybersecurity, six of the, the ten largest uh, cybersecurity companies right there uh, in Israel. Uh, we had the police commissioner there engaging on how we can connect here. But it is the growing cost uh, of doing business. There is a growing risk. Uh, but there's also issues for government. Um, you have a driverless train. Uh, cybersecurity starts to take on a whole new dimension. You know, how are you prepared to protect against that risk? So there's two parts, protection, uh, but then there's opportunity. You know, the businesses uh, that can thrive and grow up. And the way that we wanted to work is basically creating that highway uh, from Israel, uh, I say Australia, but I mean really just New South Wales, um, have that highway there, that collaboration, and there were many partnerships uh, that we signed to do exactly that. Medical cannabis with Hebrew University, uh, the Wittsman Institute, um, with the Garvin Institute in terms of uh, the genomes. Um, huge opportunities uh, that we see, and even just a few weeks ago, there's a launching pad that we had some of our brightest here sort of go there to Israel and, and come back. Um, we see that as undoubtedly the future. We've identified uh, the base precinct down, down there as uh, basically the, the heart of the innovation of this city where, you know, there'll be a technology uh, precinct that'll be connected into a technology and innovation university. Uh, that will spread out to the technology park into the already existing uh, context uh, of Piermont with uh, the startup culture there. Uh, and I think that's going to become the envy of the world. And is that important? Well, it's incredibly important if you think about how the economy is growing. We want Sydney to be at the heart of it, but we also want the rest of New South Wales. So just last week I was up in Newcastle uh, having an innovation hub established there because why shouldn't our regional cities also be connected and participate uh, in this growth. So, you know, as I, as I looked at uh, the Uber office, I continued uh, to reflect on some of the opportunities that come. Obviously, part of the trade mission showed me the many opportunities uh, through the innovation uh, economy that is coming. But I think 
that the New South Wales are in a credit world position. I mean, we are a state uh, that has become more competitive in a global context. Uh, we've grown faster. Uh, there's more jobs. Uh, people are taking the appropriate risks. Uh, we're building the infrastructure. Uh, we have the most attractive uh, city in the world, I think. And all of that creates a package and a willingness to change and challenge ourselves, which is, which is needed in the innovation space. And I think that's an incredibly exciting thing. So, notwithstanding um, the many challenges that can come uh, in this role and uh, being in government, I, I can assure you, I think where New South Wales is, uh, we have some of the most uh, incredible times uh, for the next generations. And the decisions we make and the opportunities we pay, I think is going to make uh, their lives even better. And we, uh, unashamedly, are very proud to lead the nation. And uh, don't stop there, why don't we lead the world? And that's what I think we'll do. So thank you for the opportunity to come and uh, speak to you today. And uh, appreciate the time. Thank you.